Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Welcome Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Madison. Jr. Kirk Herbstreit is on the phone. February 16th, 2022, people. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody's having a great day. I hope everybody is ready for just an unbelievable episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Okay, so here is the deal. First of all, today is going to be the first episode where I really don't do any football. Like, this is the first time probably since I would guess, I don't know, July, early August, that there is zero football to discuss on the show. I open the show by discussing all the big college hoops from Tuesday night, Tennessee, Kentucky, Villanova, Providence, my boy Mike White taking another L, Memphis getting another win, a lot to talk about in the world of college basketball, but why I am so excited for this show is one, because I'm going to kill it off the top, but two, we have just an unbelievable guest for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, and I am so proud of this moment, Sean Miller, Former head coach, Arizona Wildcats, joins today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Now, Sean Miller's doing some media stuff with my good friend Rob Douster, but I believe that this is essentially the first sit-down interview that he has done since he left Arizona. I'm incredibly proud of it. I've talked about Coach Miller. I've talked about the Arizona situation on and on and on and on again over the last two, three, four, five years, dating back to 2017 with the situation involving DeAndre Ayton and all that stuff. Um, I think I've defended Coach Miller. I think I've defended Arizona in a way that nobody else has. It is clear that word got back to him, and he agreed to join the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And so, loaded episode, fun interview with Sean Miller. We talk about all sorts of stuff. We talk about this Arizona roster that he has left for Tommy Lloyd. What does he think about this team that he recruited, what Tommy Lloyd is doing with it. We talk a little bit about the NCAA investigation. I will be completely transparent here right off the top. The investigation, incredibly, is still ongoing five years later. So there's a lot of things that he can't talk about. But then we do talk about kind of his future. Uh, in a world where Bruce Pearl just got a lifetime extension. In a world where Bill Self got a lifetime extension a few weeks ago, um, I, I'll say it. I, I, I think somebody should hire Sean Miller. If not this year while the investigation at Arizona is ongoing, I would think by this time next year, somebody should seriously think about hiring him. So Sean Miller, really fun interview, really interesting interview. I think 
and I hope that you will have a new perspective on Sean Miller because as I say to him during the interview, as I've said on this show so many times, there have been a lot of things that have been said about him, his program, his players publicly that is simply not true. It has been proven to be false in the court of law. It has been proven to be false in the midst of an NCAA investigation. Sean Miller if you love college hoops and if you have an open mind to everything that has happened over the last five years in this FBI investigation, go ahead and listen to that. With that said, though, let's start the show with a lot of college hoops and let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is Tuesday night college hoops. When I was a kid, it used to be Big Monday. There's been times in college hoops history where Wednesday night's a big night, where Thursday night's a big night. Saturdays are always going to be big, but I just feel like this year, Tuesdays are the night in college hoops where crazy stuff is always going down. Last week, we had Arkansas beating Auburn. This week, a loaded, loaded, loaded night. And before we even get into it, let me just say, Tuesday night felt like February college hoops, okay? And I know I've talked a lot about the crowds at all sorts of arenas across the country, whether it is uh, Pauley Pavilion when they're at full capacity, Rupp Arena, McHale Center. Um, I I could go on down the list. But when I was flipping between Providence and Villanova, Kentucky and Tennessee, um, you know, on and on down the list, Indiana, which could not hold on again against Wisconsin, It just felt like February college hoops. The fans were into it. The stakes were high. Every moment of every game just felt like it meant more. And so with that said, let's talk about some of these games. And I want to open the show by talking about one of two top 25 matchups. The first one coming in Rocky Top, Tennessee. I am talking about Tennessee hosting Kentucky. And Tennessee, if we're going to be perfectly honest, just put in an absolute butt whooping on Kentucky. Final score in this game was 76 to 63. And I'll be blunt, Kentucky fans may disagree. I don't even think it was as close as the 13 point deficit would show. And before we get into it, I want to kind of take a deep dive on Tennessee. What I would say is this is listen, I could do the whole like, what does it mean for Tennessee? What does it mean for Kentucky? What is here's the bottom line. I said it last Tuesday when I came on following the Illinois Purdue game. Sometimes in February in college hoops, really good teams in college basketball just go on the road and the other team is simply better. And so before I get into the breakdown of this game and what it means and who it means this for that, I'm just telling you right now, my biggest takeaway was this was February college hoops. Tennessee got embarrassed a month ago at Rupp Arena. Tennessee came into this game. They basically said, look, We got 20,000 orange-clad people behind us. We are not losing this game, and it's exactly what happened. In terms of the game itself, let's talk a little bit about it because, first of all, you know, it's interesting. I haven't talked a ton of Tennessee on this podcast. I think the first year or so that I did this podcast, it was kind of that Grant, uh, Grant Williams, Admiral Schofield, Jordan Bone era of Tennessee basketball. And it was just like one of those things where I was like, I was talking Tennessee every single episode, every single day. By the way, I almost said Grant Sherfield, who actually plays for Nevada, not Grant. I almost combined Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield into one and called them Grant Sherfield. But it was the Grant Williams, Admiral Schofield, Jordan Bone era. And I talked about Tennessee like every single episode. 
They were competing for a number one seed. They were competing for a national championship. It ended up resulting in a uh, Sweet 16 loss to Purdue back in the 20, I guess it would have been the 2018, 2019 NCAA tournament, whatever it was. But I bring it up because since then, I have not talked about a, t- a ton about Tennessee. But two things. One, I thought, and I, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, I thought this was probably the best effort from Tennessee since the Grant Williams, Admiral Schofield era at Tennessee. But then two, I haven't talked about it much because they have been one of those teams, and I talk about them all the time on this podcast, that it's taken time to figure things out, okay? And so I really essentially have not talked about them because for most of the season, they were just kind of a team that was kind of in flux, kind of in turmoil. Played really great defense, played really terrible offense for a good chunk of November, December, January. And I just kind of said, look, I don't know what else there is to say. If they lock in on defense and they're not playing a good team and they can win 62-60, to then they're going to win a lot of games. But if they play a team that can match them size-wise, physicality, whatever, then guess what? They're probably going to lose. But over the last month or so, frankly, since they lost to Kentucky the first time they played at Rupp Arena, Tennessee is completely flipped. And this Tennessee team, the Tennessee team that we saw on Tuesday, this Tennessee team is damn good. And so what has happened over the last three, four weeks since Tennessee played Kentucky is that Rick Barnes has figured out his rotations and he has figured out this offense. And so it's so crazy, right? Because I remember even like, I don't know, three weeks or so ago, I remember it was after the Vanderbilt game, Tennessee loses to Kentucky, then they play Vanderbilt and struggle at Vanderbilt. And I said, look, I love Rick Barnes. I've had him on this podcast, but I think he's got to cut down this rotation. I think he has got to figure out what pieces actually you can't be playing. I remember the Vanderbilt game. He played 11 guys, and it was a close game. It wasn't as though it was a 30-point margin of victory, and he's playing walk-ons. He played 11 guys against Vanderbilt. I said, you can't play that many guys in major college basketball. So what has happened over the last two or three weeks? He has cut down his rotation. He has figured out the guys that work together, and all of a sudden, Tennessee is rocking, okay? They've now won eight straight SEC games, eight of nine overall. The only loss was by one point at Texas. And this is a team that, again, middle of February, you want to be playing your best basketball, and that's exactly what they're doing. What's really cool is some of the backstories specifically on this Tennessee team. So for people who haven't followed, this team really kind of took off when this kid, Zakai Ziegler, really was just kind of given the reins to this team and to the the, the roster and everything um, that goes into college basketball, right? So who is Zakai Ziegler? Why is his story so cool? So if you listen to, if you watch any Tennessee game, I mean, they talk about it every single game, but this kid was essentially a, a guy that went into this past summer. So the summer of 2021, I'm talking like six months ago, without any scholarship offers, was planning on going to prep school, had graduated from high school. And Rick Barnes and his staff see this kid and they just say, we got to have him. And he's kind of like the Rudy, five foot nothing, a hundred nothing without an ounce of athletic ability. And I know if Rick Barnes or any of his staff hear that, they'll get mad at me. I don't know if he's quite that, but it's not that far from the truth. He's kind of this undersized dude that just has heart. I heard Jimmy Dyke say it on the, on the broadcast today. Like he is fearless. He is this program's version of Grant Williams, the guy that it doesn't matter what his recruiting ranking was, it doesn't matter whatever, he is just coming to play every single night. And so what's been so cool is that essentially, uh, you know, Rick Barnes has let him loose. 
He played 28 minutes on th- on Tuesday, third most on the team. And as he has kind of ascended, as Rick Barnes has trusted him more, this team has taken off. And so, as I said, they've won eight straight SEC games, eight of nine. And if you just look at the stat sheet, it's all Zakai Ziegler. On Tuesday night against Kentucky, 14 points, four rebounds. The other night, the last game they played, 16 po- or, or 14 points and four assists, excuse me, 16 points and five assists against Vanderbilt. Seven straight games for Zakai Ziegler in double figures. You do the math, that almost directly correlates with this win streak that they are on. And with Zakai Ziegler playing as well as he has, it has allowed everything else at Tennessee to fall into place, okay? So Tennessee had this other guard named Kennedy Chandler, was believed to be a one-and-done. Many believed him to be the best point guard in high school basketball last year. He comes to Tennessee. He has super great flashes of just incredible play. But then he also plays like a freshman point guard where he's turning the ball over, he's doing this, he's doing that, he's doing whatever. And now all of a sudden with this kid, Zakai Ziegler, this kind of underrated, under-recruited, nobody knows anything about him guy, all of a sudden with Ziegler playing as well as he has, it has allowed Kennedy Chandler to play his best basketball as well. And so Kennedy Chandler against Kentucky on Tuesday night finished the game, played really, really, really well against Kentucky in his own right in a game where, where he steps up plays very well, finishes with 17 points, five rebounds, six assists, two steals. And so now you have these two guys playing together, and then you have the guys down low doing what they did earlier, as I mentioned, playing elite defense, especially at the rim. You look at this game on Tuesday night. Yes, Kentucky finished with more rebounds, all that good stuff. It's simply because Oscar Sheboy is a monster, right? Um, You know, Tennessee... I thought really controlled the paint. I thought they limited transition defense. Jimmy Dykes talked about a lot on the game. And it was just really a great performance by Tennessee. And in the bigger picture, like, I think it's officially time to start talking about Tennessee. And, like, look, I'm not talking Final Four. I'm not talking all that stuff, right? I, I did on, on Monday show the five teams that I believe can win a national championship. I'm not saying we got to put Tennessee on there. But what I would say is, This is a team where everybody on this roster, the pieces are finally coming together. Ironically, and it's unfortunate, I I don't mean to make light of this, but they also had another player named Olivier Kangwa who went down with a season-ending injury. I think that kind of clarified and condensed the roster, and I'm not wishing, I'm not happy that he went down with an injury, but no one roots for injuries, but I do think it kind of helped with what they do. But I look at this Tennessee team now, man, and I say, dude, They've won eight straight games. Their only loss during that stretch was out of con- eight straight SEC games. Their only loss out w- during that stretch was out of conference. It was at Texas with Chris Beard by one point in kind of a weird, controversial game. And I'm just telling you, this team is coming on strong. Are they the quote-unquote best team in the SEC? I don't know. I mean, Auburn's really good. I mean, Kentucky beat Tennessee even worse at Rupp Arena than Tennessee beat Kentucky on Tuesday night. Arkansas has won 9 of 10 overall. But what I would tell you is, I think that four, that top four, Kentucky, Auburn, Tennessee, Arkansas, in whatever order you want, is as good as anybody's top four in college basketball. And I don't know, and when I say in college basketball, I mean in terms of a conference, and I don't know that I felt like Tennessee was in that upper tier until Tuesday night. 
but they do what they have to do. Eight straight wins, take care of business, credit Tennessee, who is playing, I believe, as well as anybody in the SEC. I'm not saying they're the best team in the SEC, but they are playing as well as anybody in the SEC. Credit them, credit Rick Barnes. He's shortened his rotation. He's figured out what guys work well together, and Tennessee is playing some really, really good basketball right now. In terms of the other side of things, there's Kentucky. And listen, I, I think on the one hand, there's a couple things that can be true, right? What do I say all the time? There's two things that can be true in life. One, like, if you watch the game, it just wasn't Kentucky's night. Like, we can debate it. We can argue it. And Tennessee fans, I'm not making excuses for them. I'm not saying you didn't deserve to win. But as I said, it's February basketball, conference play, college basketball. This is what happens. Tennessee, this game meant everything to them. Kentucky falls behind early. Tennessee has more energy. They have the home crowd, and they're just behind the eight ball, and they never catch up. So on the one hand, I don't think there's much to worry about, especially when you factor in that, again, Kentucky, another road game where they were not 100%. I didn't think Ty Ty Washington was going to play at all. I didn't think he should play at all. John Calipari mentioned in the post game that if he had to do it over, he wouldn't play him at all. And I don't know if that's just to kind of cover John Calipari's butt or to make an excuse or whatever. But what I'm saying is, on the one hand, I'm not worried about Kentucky at all. On the other, I would say it's another game where they were less than 100%. And this was just a game where sometimes you face a team that needs to win more, and they went out and got it. Just about the only concern for Kentucky, and I had a couple Kentucky fans either tweet me or DM me or text me or whatever about this, like... It's the third time that Kentucky has lost an SEC play. All three games were on the road. All three games were two really good NCAA tournament caliber teams on the road. You lose at Auburn. You lose at LSU. You lose at Tennessee. All three games where you're less than 100%. Oh, by the way, when you are 100%, destroy Kansas at Kansas. When you're 100%, you beat Alabama at Alabama. But my only concern is, this is now the middle of February, and this is a team, like, like the injuries are starting to pile up here, right? Second time that Ty Ty Washington is dealing with issues. Uh, Severe Wheeler has missed time, been in and out of the lineup. Jacob Toppin, in and out of the lineup. And at some point, listen, I make fun of Petty Hardaway talking about we haven't been 100% all year. Well, Petty Hardaway's team's 100% all year and they're playing well. And I do think it's time to say, like, Kentucky. Like, I, I don't know whether you have to keep Ty Ty Washington out extra, you know, whether you sit him on Saturday for the next game or what it is. But at some point, you do have to get to 100%. And so to me, that's the only concern, is that at a certain point, the injuries stop all being coincidental and accidental. And oh my goodness, how did this one happen with that? At some point, you're just an injury-prone team, or you have guys that are very injury-prone. And so I'm not saying that's the case, but this is now middle of February, and they continue to add up, they continue to add up, and at a certain point, you got to get healthy. And so that I'm not saying there's something John Calipari could do or it's his fault or blame this, but I'm just saying at a certain point, you might just have an injury-prone team. I think it's what Baylor's dealing with right now. I think it's what other teams are dealing with right now. Kentucky, you just got to get healthy. But in terms of the actual basketball stuff, I'll be honest, I'm not really worried. I'm really not. Uh, if you want me to overreact and freak out, I will. But listen, everybody takes bad loss. Everybody takes losses this time of year in college basketball, right? I tweeted it out. I had some Kentucky fans saying, we're a total fraud. And it's like, well, that same place that you lost on Tuesday night, Thompson Bowling Arena to Tennessee, Arizona, who I love, lost in the same building. 
Uh, Gonzaga lost to an Alabama team that Kentucky already beat this year. So to me, I just sit there and say I can't worry about Kentucky, but I do hope that they get healthy over these next two, three weeks because I want to see this team at full strength come tournament time. Yes, I do believe they are good enough to win it all. Let's get into some of the other stuff that happened in college basketball on Tuesday night, and then we'll get to Sean Miller, and that's going to be a really good interview. Um, the first one that I do have to discuss, and I talked about it a minute ago, Villanova against Providence. And what I'll say about this one, if you, if you follow me on Instagram, on Instagram I did my little preview for the day, and I said I thought Tennessee took care of Kentucky. I just thought it was a bad spot for Kentucky. I thought Kentucky uh, is really good, but it's just a bad spot. Tennessee's had a ton of success against Kentucky through the years. Rick Barnes, I think, is now 8-8 eight and eight against Kentucky since he got to Tennessee. But I bring it up because Villanova-Providence was the exact opposite. And coming into this game, I said, Providence, they get no respect. They're awesome. They're 21-2 coming in. Why does nobody like them? The metrics don't like them. Whatever. And I said, Providence is beating Villanova as a home underdog. Instead, it was the exact opposite as Villanova basically went into that building and basically said, like, look, don't forget about us now. Don't forget about we're the team with the championship pedigree, with the championship players, with the guys who have been there before, the guys who have won Big East titles. And do not forget about the Villanova Wildcats. Just a, an incredible, first of all, let me even, before I even get into the specifics of the game, let me just say a couple things. One, as great, so, so the Kentucky-Tennessee game was interesting from the perspective that Kentucky-Tennessee was really one-sided from the beginning. And Tennessee was great. Kentucky didn't feel like you got your best effort. Providence-Villanova was, from minute one, I'll just say this, it was one of the most hotly contested Big games that I've seen all year, right? We talk about the best games of the season. What were the best games that we've seen all year? Um, you know, UConn, uh, UConn-Auburn was one. UConn-Seton Hall was one. I thought, uh, I don't know, Auburn-Arkansas was pretty good last week. But I bring it up because this was one of those games where from the first possession of the game, it just felt like it was back and forth, nipping, like every single play felt like it was like, the world was going to explode. I can't even explain it. It was just a super tense, super intense game. And I thought that for the most part, it was really evenly played. It was really well balanced. The teams did what they do well. Villanova took care of the basketball, attacked, made plays off the dribble, made threes. Kid named Justin Moore had 16 points in the first about six, seven minutes of the game. He finishes with 19. Colin Gillespie, fifth year senior, been around forever. Made all sorts of plays, career-high 31 points in this one. Providence could not hit an open three to save their lives, which was kind of crazy to watch and kind of frustrating to watch because they're actually a pretty good three-point shooting team this year. But if you watched them, they got the ball into the paint. They kept making plays. They kept making plays. They kept making plays. They'd put the ball on the rim. They'd get the offensive rebound. They'd put it back. Just a really fun back-and-forth game. But the thing that stood out was Providence kept getting close. They kept getting close, but they couldn't get over the hump. They'd be down two, and they'd be down six, cut it to two, have a wide open three to take the lead, miss. They'd have a free throw to tie the game, miss. It was just one of those games where if you watch basketball and college basketball enough, you just know that there are just these games sometimes where whoever the team is, road, home, Big East, Big Ten, SEC, ACC, 
where you just you're there, you're there, you're there, you're there, you're there. You can't get over the hump, and instead the other team ends up winning, and that's exactly what happened on Tuesday night. What I would also say from Villanova's perspective, it's like I said a minute ago. This was really their don't forget about us moment, <laughs> and it's funny because at the end of the Sean Miller interview, I do ask him. I said, Coach, I said, you know, you're in the media now, and I said, look, here's the deal. I believe there are five teams, in my opinion, that are good enough to win the national championship this year. And I give him the five teams that I listed uh, the other day, Arizona, Auburn, Kentucky, Gonzaga, and whoever was the last one, Duke. And I said, Coach, am I missing anybody? And it was funny because one of the ones that he defaulted to right away was Villanova. And I was like, Coach, I, I mean, I like you, and I think you know – I mean, you, you made – Seven Sweet Sixteens, four Elite Eights. You know basketball, but like Villanova. But this was Villanova's game where they were like, "Dude, do not forget about us." They came into this one at nineteen and twenty. What about nineteen and six overall? Uh, what are they now? Twelve. They were twelve and three coming into this one. Two games behind Providence in the loss column, and they were just the better team start to finish. And I think what they what what I took out of that game, never doubt Villanova. This is one of those teams, all those guys in the program, they're older, they've played in big games, they've played in tough road environments, and to me it's no different than ultimately playing at Gonzaga, at Kentucky, at Duke. Uh, it's funny, Kentucky fans always joke that every time they go on the road, it's a t-shirt game, they're giving away free t-shirts, they're honoring some team or some player or retiring a jersey. That's kind of the same when Villanova walks into your building. It's the biggest game for every team that they play every single year, and I think Villanova has that experience, right? I mean, we talk about uh, college basketball. Uh, there's not a lot of teams that go play true road games, and that's exactly what Villanova has done. They played at UCLA earlier this year. They played at Baylor earlier this year. They've played in the Big East at Creighton now at this point, at Xavier. Um, you know, you go on and on down the list, at Marquette. Like, they have played in so many big games, and so it's funny because I saw them earlier in the year at UCLA. I thought they were good then. I think they're even a better team now, and it's really interesting because they started the year at 7-4 and four overall. They're now sitting there at 20-6, and six, basically meaning they're 13-2 and two in their last 15 games. So if you're looking for a team that is slowly on the rise, I still don't know that size-wise, athletically, they can match up with Arizona, Gonzaga, Duke even, even though Duke's struggling a little bit right now. Even Kentucky, I think the physicality of Oscar Shiba would give them problems. But Villanova, this was their statement like, don't forget about us, we're right in the mix. And I could see Villanova as like that pesky two-seed or three-seed that, uh, you know, a two-seed in the Elite Eight playing to go to a Final Four. If I'm whoever, if I'm Duke, if I'm Kansas, that is not a team that I want to see. From Providence's perspective, listen. I know people like to make fun of Providence. The metrics hate them, all that good stuff. What I would just say is I am not out on Providence by any stretch of the imagination. I think they're really, really, really good, really physical, make you play their game. And Providence's resume speaks for themselves. One, one at Wisconsin, one at UConn, one at Xavier. Um, they just play a lot of close games, but they're really good in close games. And, and Tuesday night was the one that they could not uh, you know, they could not make the plays that they needed to down the stretch, but it really wasn't even down the stretch. They just didn't shoot the ball well. They struggled from behind the three-point arc, and again, every single time they were on the cusp of making a play, they couldn't get over the hump. I, I still love Providence. I think they're one of the top 10 teams, and I just talked about Nova. 
I could see Providence being a, a, a three seed and beating Duke uh, in a Sweet 16 or being a two seed or a three seed and playing Duke to go to a Final Four and to get to a Final Four. I think Providence is that good. Uh, I, I still think they're good even though they lost. Again, it's what I said a minute ago with Kentucky and Tennessee. Sometimes good teams just lose in February in college basketball. Really quickly, a couple other notes. First of all, credit where it's due. Memphis went on the road and again took care of ten, uh, of Cincinnati. Uh, I talked about Memphis a little bit on the show on, I guess it would have been Sunday, Monday show. Uh, t- Memphis is playing good basketball right now. They have now won six straight in a row, six six in a row. Their last two wins at Houston, at Cincinnati. They play at SMU on Saturday. Those are the three best teams in their league. They've already beaten two of them back-to-back on the road, and they have a chance to beat a third on Saturday. Now, I talked about it after the Houston win on Monday show. I don't believe I saw my buddy John Rothstein claim that this means that they can get into the NCAA tournament without winning the automatic bid. Don't think they're there yet. They're 15-8 overall, 9-4 overall. Uh, they took some bad losses earlier in the year, right? They lost to, to Georgia. They lost to Ole Miss, two teams that are really, really, really struggling right now. Uh, you know, they lost, to, uh, they lost to Tulane earlier this year. Now, they don't have any bad home losses. They did lose to Murray State, but they, they, they're 15-8. and eight. I, I, I give Penny Hardaway credit. They're playing much better basketball, but it's far from a done deal. I think it's worth noting, and I talked about it on the last episode, uh, Bonnie Bates is still out with injury. I don't wish anyone, especially a kid that just turned 18 years old, any ill will, but Penny Hardaway is another one, man. He's got his veterans playing well. He's basically cut his rotation to, to seven guys. There was only seven guys that played more than nine minutes on on Tuesday night, and they got a win. They got a win that they absolutely needed to. And if it, it, I'm not saying you don't want Penny, uh, Imani Bates to come back, but they're clearly playing better without him. They got the rotations down, and I'll be curious to see what happens with them going forward. A uh, couple other notes. One, I'll tell you this. I was watching the Duke-Wake Forest game, okay? So Duke, um, so Duke was playing Wake Forest. Coach K, weird situation. I don't know all of the details as I record here on Tuesday night. We still have a lot of information that we don't have. Coach K leaves at halftime, does not come back. Duke has a big lead. John Shire takes over. Duke immediately blows that lead. All I'll say is this. The ACC right now is the worst that it has ever been in my life. And I bring it up to very simply say, Maybe the greatest coach in the history of college basketball is going to be gone in two months. Like in two months from now, as I record, Mike Krzyzewski will never coach another game as the Duke basketball head coach. And so I bring it up because this league is already wide open and it's going to be that much more wide open when Mike Krzyzewski decides, when Mike Krzyzewski steps away, which is coming soon. And so as I was watching that game, one, I think Wake Forest is a program on the rise. Steve Forbes at Wake Forest, second year, was one of the few coaches that took over for last year right before the pandemic. He now has Wake Forest in a position to make the NCAA tournament. And oh, by the way, they probably could have and maybe should have won at Cameron Indoor. But what I also saw on Saturday, on on Tuesday, Louisville, whoever Louisville's AD is, the interim guy, go make a real hire. Go make a real hire because I believe the ACC is about to be way wide open next year, right? Like, like take out the COVID year where things were weird. Duke has pretty much been at the top forever. Virginia has pretty much been at the top forever. North Carolina has pretty much been at the top forever. 
North Carolina is trying to figure it out under Hubert Davis. Talked a lot about Hubert Davis. Not saying he's not the answer, just saying I have some questions. Duke, I clearly have some questions with John Shire. Never coached a game, taking over one of the biggest brands in college basketball. Big, big, big shoes to fill. And I'll say this, like Virginia with Tony Bennett, and I think I've hinted at this before, I'm not sold that Tony Bennett in the transfer portal era, like, like, are the next 10 years at Virginia going to be as good as the last 10 years? Because I kind of don't think they're going to be. 2022 on, I don't know that you can just redshirt guys and keep guys in your program for three or four years and not play them. And then when you do play them, they average nine points a game. Like, I don't think you can do that going forward in college basketball. So you talk about Dukes in, term, Dukes in transition. North Carolina's in transition. Virginia, even with a national championship winning coach, is in transition. Syracuse, sorry. Sorry, Orange fans. Syracuse ain't built for the long haul. Louisville, go get yourself a real coach. Go get yourself a real coach because I believe this league will be here for the taking, uh, and it'll be really interesting. Duke survives against Wake Forest. Last little one, uh, Florida lost to Texas A&M. And I have been told, this is what I would say about Florida. So Florida right now is currently 16-10 and 10 and 6-7 and seven in the SEC, okay? So this is now year seven for Mike White at Florida. And if you take out year two, in which he had all of Billy Donovan's players, here are his records. 21-15 year one, 27-9 in year two with all Billy Donovan's players. 21 and 13, 20 and 16, 19 and 12, 15 and 10, 16 and 10 as I record right now. Which means that over the last five years, Florida will never have finished with fewer than 10 regular season losses and no fewer than seven SEC losses. And that is, by the way, if they win every game the rest of the regular season, which they're not going to because they still have Auburn, Kentucky, and Arkansas left on the schedule. And so I will tell you, and if you follow AaronTorresOnline.com, I wrote about the coaching carousel in college hoops. I've been told by some people that matter, this might finally be it for Mike White. This might finally be it because Florida fans, they know they were lucky to have Billy Donovan, but they also know it don't have to be this bad. You can't have Nate Oates come into the league in year two and win the league. You can't have Eric Musselman come into the league in year two and make an Elite Eight. And oh, by the way, this year's team is just, just as good. You can't have Rick Barnes doing what he's doing. John Calipari's doing what he's doing. Bruce Pearl's doing what he's doing. You can't have all this and expect to just be okay with it. And so Mike White, you know, he's 16-10 and 10 right now. Uh, fewest losses he's had in the last five years was 10 last year in a COVID year. Fewest SEC losses he's had since year two was seven over the last five years. He's already at seven right now. Three really tough games left on the schedule of the five plus an SEC tournament. They're not going to make the NCAA tournament. If they don't make the NCAA tournament, I think Mike White might be out. Whew. All right. With that said, I think it's time for me to get out of here. And I think it's time for me to bring in Sean Miller. And I said it off the top. I'm very excited for you guys to listen to Sean Miller. And I'll say this too. I'm very proud of how far this show has come and the reach that we have and the significance in the college sports community that we have, okay? If you've been a longtime listener of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, I've been basically doing this show since this FBI probe started basically in like the 20, 
2017-2018 season, I guess it was. Like, like the end of that season was the first time I started doing it. And since the show began, I've talked a ton of the FBI probe. And if you listen closely, I've defended Sean Miller a lot. I've defended a lot of other guys a lot. And the one thing I kept saying about Arizona was I said, look, I don't know Sean Miller. I've obviously gotten to know him the last few months or so. Um, but I don't know Sean Miller. But the facts of the case do not line up with what people are saying about him and what they're saying about not only him, but his assistant coaches, his program, his players, etc. And so obviously, after years in which I was essentially the only person in the media publicly defending Sean Miller, word got back to him, hey, there's this crazy guy Torres. He's quirky and he's crazy and he's goofy. But like he actually has his facts right on this one. And so over time, Sean Miller got to learn about who I was, what this podcast was about. And now that things, you know, now that he's no longer in coaching, he joins the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And I'm so excited about this because as best I can tell, this is really essentially the first real interview that he has done since he was let go at Arizona. And obviously it goes without saying there is still an ongoing investigation, one that should conclude this this fall, incredibly five years after it started. But the NCAA investigation is still ongoing. So there's a lot of things that he cannot talk about. And there's a lot of things that I didn't press him on. But we do talk about all sorts of different stuff. We talk about the current season that Arizona is having. How excited is he to watch his former recruits? How excited is, how proud is he to watch the guys that he recruited? How proud is he, by the way, of the way that he left the program, right? Because a lot of people criticize Sean Miller. Never made a Final Four. Well, he made four, four Elite Eights. You're a player two away, one, you know, every single game, you're a player two away from going to a Final Four. Criticize him, oh, he never made a Final Four. Well, guess what? He left the program in great shape. It's hard to imagine any coach anywhere, and I'm not saying Tommy Lloyd's not awesome. It's hard to imagine any situation, any coach having any better situation to walk into than Tommy Lloyd did, so we talk about that. We talk about the idea of, look, Bruce Pearl, who I love, obviously I've had him on this podcast, uh, Bill Self, both those guys signed lifetime contracts. Does Sean Miller want to get back into coaching? And if he does, how good does he feel about his chances to get a job based on Bruce Pearl getting another shot, based on Bill Self getting another shot? So really fun interview. And I do hope you guys, you know, I hope it kind of changes your mind. What I would love for you guys and girls to do, listen to it. Feel free to shoot me a tweet at Aaron underscore Torres. Feel free to email me. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. DM me. Whatever you want to do, hit me up and let me know what you think of this interview because I do think you'll come out of this feeling differently about Sean Miller than you did a little while ago. And I told him this during the interview, and I'll tell you right now. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if any AD is going to have the guts to hire him this coaching cycle, but man, if I was Florida, if I was Georgia, if I was even Maryland, there's not a more accomplished coach on the market right now that's available than Sean Miller. That'd be my first call if I had a coaching opening. So with that said, I think it's time for me to get out of here. And I think it's time to welcome in head coach Sean Miller. Uh, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to subscribe. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com if you have any questions, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com if you have any questions. It's time for me to get out of here. It is time for me to welcome in
the former head coach of the Arizona Wildcats, uh, currently doing media stuff with the Field of 68 Media Network. Sean Miller joins me. That is all for me. It's time to get to Coach Miller. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out Rachel Hates My Voice. I will be back on Friday. Now, here is head coach Sean Miller. All right, joining me via Zoom. Uh, very excited to have this gentleman on the show. Uh, coach Sean Miller, formerly of Arizona, now with the Field of 68 uh, podcast network. Coach, uh, I hate to say it, I I've certainly talked about you a lot on this show, um, but it's a privilege to talk to you. There's been a lot out there about you, your career, you're this, you're that, but now you're in the media, Arizona. I, I just want, I'm really excited to speak with you. I hope you're doing well. I hope everybody around you is doing well. I am, Aaron. Um, I'm doing well, and probably like every sports fan in the country, just uh, was captivated watching the Super Bowl and you know, me being at Xavier for eight years, living in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, uh, ironically, I, I just went back there previous to the Super Bowl uh, for the first time in a long, long time. And just to see uh, what the Bengals, uh, how it, how they captivated that city. And, you know, just it was an exciting uh, weekend in sports. It's it's actually a downer because uh, you get so enthralled in watching the NFL that, you know, you just kind of say to yourself, OK, I guess it's college basketball and March Madness up next. So Sean Miller is like everybody else. The day after the Super Bowl ends, you kind of wake up and you say, I love college basketball, but I'm going to miss football these next eight months. Is that <laughs> fair to say? Yeah. You know, Aaron, there's so many differences when you, when you work as a college basketball coach, uh, you know, you're in charge of your team. It's much bigger than just uh, coaching in the games, you know, and uh, you almost block out, uh, a huge portion of the of the sports world simply because a you don't have time and at least for me uh, you're so um, engaged in in your own sport that when you have free time it's almost like you don't want to deal with sports right sure but uh, when you don't have a team uh, you become I think more of a general sports fan uh, I love the Steelers growing up in Pittsburgh but I watched probably more NFL this year in my life than maybe I have in the previous 30. I mean, it just, you know, you just look forward to Sunday and then what you realize about the NFL, they, they kind of have about four days <laughs> of the week, you know, now, uh, but it was, it was a great season and I, I enjoyed it. I always say uh, as someone who recently started my own business in the, the Super Bowl is in Los Angeles this year. So to see all the fan festivities and uh, everything that goes on, like I respect the NFL as a business more than anything else with, like you said, the way that sure. they captivate the entire nation real quick before we get to basketball. I mean, who's Sean Miller's favorite player to watch on Sunday, Monday, two, uh, Monday, Sunday, Monday, uh, Thursday. I, I know you're a Steelers guy, but is, are you like a, a Josh Allen guy, a Mahomes guy, a Joe Burrow guy? I mean, who you got? Man, I, I love a lot of guy. I, lo I love a lot of them. I really do love the NFL. I mean, I'm, I'm, driven by the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, when you grow up, uh, kind of, I grew up elementary school in the seventies, you know, coming all the way through junior high and high school in the eighties. I mean, you think about those 20 years, uh, you talk about hall of fame players and teams, and super bowls, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers were, if they're not out on the top, they were right there seemingly every year, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, my favorite player at the moment, uh, I'll go, I'll go with TJ Watt. I mean, the defensive okay. player of the year. And then, you know, look back to Pittsburgh, Aaron Donald, who went to Pitt, where I, which I did, and Penn Hills High School. And just to watch him 
you know, grow up in Western Pennsylvania, go to Pitt, somewhat unheralded and man, become kind of a Lawrence Taylor like, right? I mean, like maybe the most dominant player in the NFL and just watching him win the Super Bowl. Uh, so I'm a fan of this year, I would say, especially TJ Watt and Aaron Donald. Well, I'd say too, like as a guy who's recruited athletes for, as you said, the better part of 30, 35 years or whatever, I feel like you got to have an appreciation for a guy like Aaron Donald that doesn't fit the measurables. You know, in basketball, you want your guards to be 6'4", 6'5", your wings to be 6'8", 6'. I mean, Aaron Donald's like a 5'11", 6'0", dude that didn't fit any of those measurables coming out of high school. So I, I just feel like as somebody that's in your space, I feel like you got to appreciate the story too, you know? No question. And, and, you know, and if you follow Aaron Donald, he's given back to uh, the University of Pittsburgh at a very young age, uh, you know, has really a, a, a performance center where, you know, the players there can, uh, can work out. He himself, I think, in the offseason when he's home, works out there and kind of reminds me of what Richard Jefferson did at Arizona. You know, Richard Jefferson, before he was towards the end of his career, he really did it more towards the beginning of his professional career, he gave back in a, a huge way to the basketball program in Arizona. And consequently, the the practice facilities named the Richard Jefferson Gym. And just, you know, just to see his name on there, you know, just watch the reaction of him towards players walking in that building with his name on it and, and the impact that it's already made, but it'll make for the next 20 years. You know, just when you see players and people like Aaron Donald, Richard Jefferson kind of go through as a student athlete, right? Where they leave high school, they they go to college. And then when they're in the NFL or NBA, they look back and just fondly give back. I know Steve Smith at Michigan State, Carmelo Anthony at Syracuse. It's It's like a gift that I don't think even in their best attempt that they really understand how deep the meaning is for, for generations after they leave. Very good. Let's talk a little college hoops. First of all, I mentioned field 68, you know, you're working with a good friend of mine, Rob Douster, your brother, Archie, uh, you know, Jeff Goodman, who I just saw a few weeks ago when I was in Tucson. Uh, how are you enjoying, you know, obviously I know you want to get back into coaching at some point, but how are you enjoying being on the other side? Uh, you know, your media schlub like me and the rest of the guys and girls here, how, how have you enjoyed it so far? Well, I just appreciate, you know, Rob uh, and Jeff really inviting, you know, me and, and giving my brother an opportunity just to stay involved in the game. I, I'll tell you this, Aaron, again, back to if you have your own team, you think you know everything about your own team. And, and by the way, you better <laughs> because you're in charge, but you just you forget how little you pay attention to the rest of the world, even of college basketball, because you know, what pertains to you is your team the next day, the next game, your schedule, right? The Pac-12, maybe the conference you're in. But if you'd ask me, hey, how's uh, Florida doing? You know, how is, you know, Michigan playing right now? I mean, I have like a 360 degree view way, way far away. When you're doing what you do for a living and like being a part of the field of 68, it makes you really on a daily basis, be more aware. And uh, I tell you, it's been very therapeutic for me because it's something I haven't done a lot of, but I would say I've probably watched more college basketball, more aware of teams, players this year than maybe I ever have been simply because I, I don't have my own team. And, and I've enjoyed it, you know, at night, I think the concept of the field of 68 is a great concept. 
you know, because it's just, it deals with the things that just happened. Uh, a lot of times you have the opportunity to talk to a coach or player that just finished winning a big game. And if you love college basketball, it's, it's really a good site, I think, to, to, uh, to click into. You know, you said you, something a coach always say when they're away from it is you learn. Like, what, what do you feel like, whether it's talking to a coach after a big game or watching more games or listening to other press conferences? or Like, what do you feel like that you've learned that you're going to take with you uh, when you get back into coaching? Well, you're right. Uh, I've heard so many coaches tell me over the years that, you know, if, if everybody could have a break uh, or just kind of get away from what you were doing or the place you're at, that the perspective you would have would be a healthy one and much different. And I would say that that really is the case for me. Um, you know, sometimes, Aaron, it, it actually makes you feel stronger about certain things you did, in fact, to do. Sure. It's not always like something different, but uh, what I would enjoy is just watching the successful teams or programs, and in particular, the coaches go about coaching their team and learning from them. Um, and there's, there's quite a bit, I think, that just me, whether it's, uh, you know, your approach to building a roster, uh, your approach to how you play offense, maybe even your approach to how you go about practicing early in the year versus late in the year. There's, there's so many different things that I think you learn from, you know, watching and studying others uh, without the pressure of having your own team at the same time. So I've, I've enjoyed that. And, and again, back to the field of 68 and just being aware of all of the conferences and, and the programs and teams simultaneous to that is uh, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It, it, let me say this, it at least gives me something to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, one of the teams that, that, we all kind of enjoy watching is obviously the Arizona Wildcats. And, you know, I, I would love your perspective as a, a guy that has frankly personal relationships with just about everybody on the roster um, one with their success, but two, I would also ask you is that, you know, how proud are you that, that, you know, the guys that you brought to this campus are one playing well, representing the school well. Um, and that two, to be blunt, you know, while things didn't work out, that you left the program in a great position. I mean, the one you can argue about any sort of number of different things. You cannot argue that Sean Miller left the cupboard full for whoever was going to be the next head coach. How proud of you? How proud are you about that element of the school's success? But then, just in general, the team's success this year as well. Well, first, I would answer Aaron. You know, Tommy Lloyd and his staff, which uh, you know, there's a number of different people that were with me uh, as well that are now. Uh, with him, Jack Murphy, who had a big hand in, in the recruitment of a lot of the players that are on the current roster, both while I was the head coach and after I left. But, you know, Tommy Lloyd has done a sensational job. Like, you have to take tip your hat. And, you know, being able to take over in a transition is hard uh, to establish credibility, even harder to have immediate success, uh, quite frankly, doesn't happen uh, a lot of times. I do think he inherited a, a really good situation. And uh, to answer your question about, am I proud of it? Uh, very, very proud of, uh, of what we did because it, I would say, you know, there was, it was a 12 year window, which I was at Arizona uh, establishing in 2009, you know, coming on the heels of some real uncertainty, uh, getting the program back on its feet and then thriving. And then really kind of like a second reset of, you know, some things happen 
a number of things happened that weren't good in the fall of 2017. And can you rebound from it? Can you learn from it? Can you grow and get the program moving in the right direction? And, you know, some of what you're witnessing this year, uh, you know, a way of recruiting, uh, a way of, of doing things maybe differently started as far back as three years ago. And I, I think just kind of watching some of the young people thrive and grow. And then again, they can thrive and grow all they want, but they need a direction of a great head coach and a staff. And, and they really have both. I think they have a talented roster and I think they have a really unique and talented coaching staff. And, you know, I think they're one of six to eight teams that can win it all Aaron. And, uh, and I do think that, you know, they'll be right there for one seed and have a real chance of, uh, of getting to uh, a fifth final four uh, in Arizona's history. First of all, I said on my last episode, we're down to five teams that can win it all. So we will duke it out over number six, seven, eight in a minute. Um, real quick, I was going to say, you know, first of all, and maybe it goes back to the proud element of it, but, you know, you mentioned it, and I, I don't think people realize, you know, we think of Arizona as this incredible program, as you said, four Final Fours uh, prior to your arrival. But the, the program was going through a bit of turmoil and transition when you took over. Um, that's no disrespect to anybody. It's just facts. People can look it up. You know, I believe it was three different head coaches in the three years before you got there. Uh, you know, as you look back just in general on the, the 12 years, obviously you wish things had ended different. You wish, obviously you could have brought the school a second national title, a fifth final four, but how proud of you, how proud are you in general? Because um, I don't think people, again, we, we think of the history of Arizona, the NBA players, but it wasn't an easy situation for you to walk into. And you know, I know that because I'm a UConn alum. And in 2011, your story when you faced UConn in Anaheim was one of the great stories of that college basketball season. So I didn't mean to bring up a bad memory from 2011, but in general, you know, it just, I, I think it probably goes a little bit underappreciated everything that you and all your staff and players accomplished during your time there. Well, I, I think taking you back, Aaron, um, you know, and again, I, I have a lot of time to think, right, and reflect, you know, part of the question you asked a minute ago is, you know, what do you learn when you no longer are in coaching? And look, I think anyone that is in this situation, you reflect back almost from the start. And uh, number one, I was really fortunate to be the head coach at Xavier. I mean, incredibly fortunate. There aren't 20 places in America that support their basketball program better than Xavier University. It's always been in place. It's why seemingly every coach that coaches there is successful. And uh, when we left Xavier, we were coming off of an Elite Eight. Ironically, uh, we lost to Kevin Love and Russell Westbrook <laughs> and Darren Collison. Ben Howland was the coach. And we lost in Phoenix, that, right? Points, but yeah. yeah, that that following year, we we finished up with a Sweet 16. And looking back on that, um, we had a tremendous team coming back. Uh, when I left Xavier that following year, they lost, I believe, in double overtime to Kansas State in the Sweet 16. And uh, they were a team that could have made the Final Four. So, you know, you have a lot of pride in kind of leaving a program and then coming to Arizona. Uh, when I came to Arizona... Uh, we knew that there was a, a rebuilding effort because of what you mentioned. And uh, it's like a lot of different things happened. I will tell you this, that uh, when USC made their change in the summer of 2009, if that change didn't happen, I'm not so sure I would have made it to year four as the head coach at Arizona. I, 
I really mean that and I'm humble in my in my uh reasons for saying it. It just it was a tough climb. Um but getting Derek Williams, getting Solomon Hill, getting Momo Jones, and then continuing to recruit really bolstered us and uh gave us the opportunity to get both feet on the ground. And then once that happened, uh you know, a lot of great things uh, followed for sure. But um, thinking back, Derek Williams coming to Arizona in the time that he did was a big way of getting Arizona kind of out of maybe the, the spin cycle that it was headed down and almost reviving it to be solid with new life again. And uh, he alone, remember, he was the number two pick in the draft and arguably in that season, in my mind, in the 17 years that I was a head coach, I never had a player have a better run offensively than Derek Williams did in that season. A great stat to back that up, Aaron. And I think if you're an Arizona fan, you, you probably remember it maybe more than the rest of the country. He almost broke Steve Kerr's single season three-point shooting record. And and that that record is like, I mean, legendary. I mean, it's... It's above 50, and it's historically one of the great single seasons ever recorded from three-point shooting. Uh, and you think of Steve Kerr, right? One of the great shooters to ever play. Derek, I believe, if he made his last shot uh, there against UConn, he would have uh, he would have been right there, like almost tied or in and around the same percentage of Steve. So you think about that, and you don't associate that with Derek's play, but Derek Williams was a real key component to, to Arizona's history. Very good. Let's kind of start to look ahead here. Um, you know, obviously things didn't end the way that you wanted that anyone at Arizona wanted. Um, and I've kind of already referenced for the audience before you came on that, you know, frankly, it's incredibly five years in, I'll say it is five years in, we still do not have a resolution, but, but um, is there anything that you can share in terms of an update where we are? Um, I, I know there's a lot of things you can, and I don't want to get anybody in trouble. You, Arizona, anybody, uh, but is there anything that you can share in terms, because I think Arizona fans, probably everybody's kind of ready to move on. I know you are as well. Yeah, things this offseason, uh, 100% will come to a conclusion, Aaron. And uh, once that conclusion is there, I think everybody, in fact, will be able to finally take the the final deep breath and uh, and move on and look back and learn a lot from it. Uh, it's something that uh, I regret uh, almost every day. You know, you try to, you know, to your earlier question, learn from every circumstance, be better moving forward um, and uh, see good in, in, in everything. But um, for sure, and I'm, and I'm most excited for Arizona to be able to, you know, close that entire book. And, uh, and I think that's what's great about Tommy Lloyd and his staff's initial success, that it really catapults them towards a great future. Yeah. And, and I completely, you know, knowing people all across the country, I think everybody's about ready to move on. Um, again, I know there, there's certain things that you can't talk about, but I, there's certain things that, that have already come out either via trials, uh, FBI related, whatever. Um, and one reason that, you know, I, I've, I've always tried to, and my coverage of all this stuff is, you know, one, listen, do I have access to certain people and coaches and administrators that maybe other people don't? I, I do. But there's also some stuff that's very public record wise, um, you know, that that other people can very easily access via this little thing called Google. 
And so I bring it up because, you know, there's been a lot of things that have been said about you personally, um, your staff, your players, some successful players, some, you know, whoever it is, that's simply factually incorrect. Um, and I've always tried to, in my coverage, stick to facts and, and I get stuff wrong. Um, you know, some of the early coverage that I have of what happened with you guys at Arizona, I'm not proud of that the facts have proven me otherwise, but I've tried to correct myself. I've tried to, uh, you know, admit when I'm wrong, I do a segment every episode or every week on this show called where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, where I, I talk about all the stuff that I get wrong throughout the course of a week or a month or a year. But one of the reasons I've always been sympathetic to, to Arizona, to you, to your former players, some of your assistant coaches is that there's things out there that just aren't factually correct and have been proven not to be factually correct. Uh, how frustrating is it for you, for your former players, for your former coaches? I know you guys talk behind the scenes that there's some things that people think about Sean Miller, about certain former players that simply aren't true um, that I think people kind of believe to this day. And, and, and how, how do you, how do you deal with it? How do you, process it. I mean, I, I can't even imagine being in the public eye like that. And it's like I said, it's a reason I've always kind of tried to, if you want to call it fight for Arizona, I don't know if it's fight, but I just try to present the facts because I think a lot of people still at this point don't have a lot of basic facts. Correct. Well, Aaron, that's, that's why I believe in the next decade, you, uh, you'll climb to the top of the mountain because uh, I think you've always taken a measured approach. Uh, I think you've been patient uh, I think that you've really tried to see it for what it is, good or bad, and then uh, and then as best you can with the information, the most information, uh, give your opinion. And whether your opinion was uh, shared by many or by few, uh, you you tried to deal in in that arena, which uh, I applaud you. And I think any any coach, anybody who's kind of in it, uh, you you gravitate towards people in your industry that do their job like you do your job. Uh, and, and I mean that in the most complimentary way that I can. But look, a lot has happened. Uh, there are certain things that I could have done a lot better, certain things that all of us uh, that were a part of uh, the, this, you know, September 2017 moment in time, wish that they could have gotten right or better. But um what you try to do is just be patient in your own world, uh, learn from it, move forward, and uh, know that at the end of the day, the, the facts uh, already have come out, but they will. And I think when everybody judges it, maybe, maybe it'll take as much as a decade to go by and look back on it. I think they'll see it for truly what it, what it was, not, you know, the... I don't even know the word, you know, the, the hysteria that you want to just pile on certain people. And you know, I think the one thing that, that I've learned uh, when I'm going through it as a coach or the many, many people that went through it, I'm not the only one, um, you know, you deal with it on your own, right? How you're going to get through each day, each week, do your job to the best of your ability, move forward, be transparent, be honest, listen to the people that you really, really trust, Right. But there's also like a group of people that live this life with you, your family, your wife, you know, people that you've impacted, players, former players that really believe in you, that you have this shared experience with. And it's not quite as easy for them to do the same thing, or they may go about it a different way. And so at the end, when the dust settles and the damage is done, it's not done just to you. It's done to whoever has been 
on the, on the journey with you. And I think when you then get to that point and you see that part of it, I think that's probably the hardest part to get over because that, that hurts you more than, than, than even what you went through. Because you, one thing is you're, you're, you're in control of yourself, but you're not in control of the thoughts of those people that love you, that you love, that, that are with you. Uh, and again, time heals all wounds. And, uh, and it's, that's why it's so great about being on the field of 68 and just kind of following college basketball from my current vantage point. You know, you asked me about Bill Self. Uh, it's fun to talk about him as a coach. It's fun to talk about Obaji as a player and how great the big 12 is, you know, that that's to me, what gets my juices flowing and what's great about sports. And, uh, you know, I think some of the other things that happened, it is what it is. And now I think, uh, all of us are trying as best we can to move forward. Yeah. It's interesting. You but bring up the appreciation of people like you that cover things through the lens that you cover them through is more appreciated than you realize, really. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, sometimes I think myself, like anybody, you wonder, um, you know, is, is, uh, are, are people, sometimes you just look at the facts, you say, what, why am I the only one seeing this? Um, but it's actually ironic that you bring up the, the situation with your family. I was talking about this with the Brian Harson situation at Auburn, where people were asking me, what should they do? And I said, you know, if you're Brian Harson, it's like, I understand you want to fight for what's right, but it's not just him that has to deal with it. I mean, his wife, his children, I think his children are still like high school aged. And so uh, there's a lot of crazy, crazy, crazy elements to a lot of this stuff that I think we think about the, the front facing person and we forget about all the people behind him. So I'm glad you shared that. Um, in general, do you, do you want to get back into coaching? I mean, obviously this has been your life. It's been your livelihood forever. Um, and then what I would also ask is, is, you know, obviously look, it's an ongoing investigation. You can't say certain things. I understand that, but uh, you know, Bruce Pearl was at Auburn. They were kind of caught up in, you know, similar allegations. Uh, they got their NCAA, you know, uh, they finished their, their process and Bruce Pearl just got a very lucrative contract uh, I love Bruce, uh, Coach Pearl. I have nothing but respect for him. So this isn't a knock or a dig or anything. He's always been great to me. But, you know, he's obviously had a ton of success after this. Bill Self essentially has a five-year rolling lifetime contract at Kansas. Um, do you want to get back into this? Um, and if you do, uh, I hate to say it, but, but you know, do you look around and say, okay, if, if those guys can get back on their feet, maybe it's a good situation for me too. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. You know, what, one of the things that, that I'm trying to do is, is almost take it like not a day at a time, but just, you know, a, a week at a time and trying to enjoy the things that I'm currently doing to grow and learn uh, to, to, you know, one thing that, that really got me when all this happened as far back as last spring, um, I started playing basketball at a very early age, you know, son of a high school coach. And if I said, you know, I, I believe I started taking it seriously at nine years old, you know, some people would laugh, you know, but that's just how I remember it, you know, playing at, at nine years old, uh, winning that game, being the best in the game, you know, thinking about one day uh, being a good high school player, playing in college, like that's when that journey started for me. So if you say that, okay, you're 52 years old when for the first time ever, you don't have a team, man, that, that's like... 43 seasons in a row, you know, playing uh, in college, high school, you know, as a young person, 
really playing basketball, uh, not only because you love it, but because you have goals and, and dreams of, uh, that also are attached with it. So to not have that, uh, I, I would be missing a lot not to try do, to do different things and see things in this period of time. So I believe that they'll, they'll come the next chapter for me, Aaron. And, and what I'll tell you is uh, when that next time comes, uh, not only will I be ready, but I'll be the best, the best version that I've ever been. Uh, I just don't know when, when or where that'll be. And, uh, and I'm really not uh, waking up every day trying to be stressed about it, you know, cause I, there's just a number of things you, you can't control. You know, for me, it's just to uh, kind of enjoy the moment, grow, learn, and know that when my time uh, it comes that I'll be ready. Well, best version of you, and it is worth repeating, Seven sweet 16s, uh, four elite eights. It's funny, like all these, these jobs are rumors and whatever. People ask me, who, who are the candidates? I said, listen, if I was the AD and I have no say, I'm not an AD, nobody's calling me up for, I, I go hire Sean Miller because somebody hired Bruce Pearl at some point looks really, really smart right now. Uh, so uh, so th whatever, Get, that's my opinion. You don't have to share it, whatever. Uh, real quick, kind of last pseudo question. Um, who do you enjoy watching? We'll get to your six to eight teams in a minute, but who have you enjoyed as, as a fan watching the most, whether it's a coach, a style of play, a player, a team, whatever, as, as a, a now a fan and commentator of college basketball? You know, I'm a big fan of Bill Self. Um, I, I think he's the best uh, who does it. You know, I, I think one of the things that is understated about him is everybody thinks he has, you know, eight, nine, ten McDonald's All-Americans on his roster. Uh, in fact, he has zero at the moment. And uh, as the faces have changed, uh, he's done it with great big guys. He's done it with terrific uh, wing players. He's done it with a point guard who's elite. In this year's case, he's doing it without a point guard that's elite. Um, and it's just Fog Allen Fieldhouse, the Big 12 Conference, Kansas basketball. You know, when you think of them, you just think of just this incredible success. Uh, and I just, I really enjoy watching how he plays offense, defense. Uh, you know, I would say the same uh, about Mark Few and, and to the extension there, Tommy Lloyd. You know, I, I think that the way that they play offense is uh, a lot of fun to watch. I think it's today's version of what Dean Smith did at Carolina for decades, where fast break basketball, but incredibly efficient you know, Gonzaga mastered that. I think Arizona kind of is a version of that as well. And I enjoy watching that and just seeing it for, for what it is. And then the other thing is there's a ton of coaches right now who are up and coming or maybe aren't at their last stop that I think will be final four coaches. Uh, Nico Medved at Colorado State, Jeff Linder at Wyoming. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Tony, of uh, Randy Bennett, Tony Bennett as well, but Randy Bennett at St. Mary's. But Randy's been there for 21 years. And uh, just to think of the success that he's had at little old St. Mary's, you know, behind the curtain of Gonzaga to some extent, but just what he does with less, uh, just a, an incredible coach. So you could see that I'm, I'm really scattered everywhere. This year, I don't think John Calipari gets enough credit. You know, a year ago, he's the same guy that won nine games that everybody talked about the one and done way at Kentucky is outdated. He adjusted, he blended the right transfers with unique talent, you know, like Ty Ty Washington, 
But in terms of being a disciplined, well-coached, seasoned team, nobody right now is playing at a more efficient level than Kentucky. And they're doing it in a much better way in February than they would have in November, which again, I think is a real testament to his coaching. Like judge him by the way his team played at Notre Dame, judge him by the way his team's playing now. It's night and day. And, you know, you talk about him, Ed Cooley at Providence, right? Winning close games, doing it in a place like Providence has never won a Big East regular season championship. And they've been in the Big East for a long, long time. And right now, you know, tonight they play Villanova, which could mean the Big East regular season championship. So think about all the different coaches. They all have different styles. They all have uh, different strengths. They have certain competitive advantages at the place they coach at. Yet I think you could really study and steal things from each of them. And, and that's one of the things that I really enjoy doing. Okay, so what's the one thing? You don't have to name the coach of the school. What's the one thing you're going to steal for the next uh, coaching opportunity that, that you have? I, I think uh, being even more efficient on offense, sometimes less is more. And uh, by running less, I think you can play faster. And I think as you run less and play faster, you can still be efficient. Uh, I think along those lines, you know, playing the right seven or eight players, as opposed to trying to get to that ninth guy. I, I think that in your best attempt as a coach to maybe get that ninth player some action or keep everybody happy, maybe you diminish your upside, so to speak, because you can really get into great team chemistry when that same group is playing start to finish day in, day out, game in, game out. Um, and the other thing, you know, um, Aaron, that, that I believe in college basketball that someone understated is playing with two point guards. And uh, we were headed in that direction prior to the fall of 2017. And a big reason is Lorenzo Romar had joined our staff and he talked to me a lot about the advantages of playing two point guards. You know, uh, there's so many. And if you study the final four and teams who go deep in March, it is incredible how many of those teams have, you know, not necessarily two pure point guards, but maybe a combination guard and a pure point guard. Great example is Kentucky this year. And, you know, so I know you asked me for one thing. I gave you kind of like three different things that I believe from an offensive perspective that, uh, that would improve, you know, me as a coach, or I think everybody's looking to get better. I'm no different. Very good. Last one. All right. So I told you, I said on Monday, I don't mean to ruin the season for everybody else. I think we're down to five teams that can win it all. And I'll do them in alphabetical order so there's no favoritism here. One, the Arizona Wildcats. Two, the Auburn Tigers. Three, the Duke Blue Devils. Four, Gonzaga Bulldogs. Five, Kentucky Wildcats. Am I, first of all, am I missing anyone from that? I think those are the only five because here's my stat that blows people away. And you may know this. Every year – Let me, let me said, hold up. I don't want to interrupt you. You said – Gonzaga, Arizona, Kentucky, yep. three. Al Auburn, Duke. Auburn and Duke. Okay. So the obvious ones that I'm for that I'm not forgetting, but I'm not including Purdue, which we can get into. UCLA, which I actually think is like weirdly underrated, but they've lost three of four as we record here. Uh, whatever. Uh, Illinois is one. Kansas, I actually that was my preseason pick to win it all. Uh, Baylor would be another one, but. 
the the stat that I the stat that I always share, which blows people's minds, is every year everybody says, "Oh, the tournament it's so wide open, anybody can win it." Well, I've, this stat is kind of crazy. Since two thousand seven, um, there's been fourteen NCAA tournaments played. Okay, two thousand twenty, there's no NCAA tournament. Of those fourteen tournaments, eleven were won by number one seeds. Uh, one was won by Villanova as the the top two seed, and then the other two were my 2011 UConn Huskies with the best player in college basketball, Kemba Walker. Maybe Derek Williams was right there that year. And 2014 UConn, Shabazz Napier. So essentially, if you don't have either the best player in college basketball or aren't a number one seed, you're not winning the NCAA tournament. So everybody said so wide open and, oh, my goodness, there could be 20. No, there could be 20 or 30 teams that make a Final Four. We could see a seven seed make a Final Four. That's happened before. But to win it all, and people will argue with, with me on this, but it, the, the facts back it up. Six seeds don't win the NCAA tournament. So do you believe that there's one, two, three teams that I'm obviously missing that can absolutely do it, and I'm just an idiot? You can call me an idiot. It's okay. I don't mind. I get called worse on social media all the day, all the time. So, Well, here's my perspective, and, and, and I would say that I've learned this. Um, you know, my brother and I have a podcast called Next Play, and it's part of the field of, of 68, but we interviewed Ken Pomeroy. You know, and, and okay. Ken Palm, that app, I, I think, is second to none. And they talk about college basketball efficiency. And, and we interviewed him uh, about a week ago. And, you know, there are a couple of things that I thought really jumped out at me. Number one, uh, the, the let's say the net, so to speak, that you cast is much wider when it comes to the number of teams that can actually make the final four. You know, I think we're conditioned as fans sometimes to say, well, once you make the final four, it's like a brand new season and any one of those four can win the national championship. Whereas I think if you look at it from an efficiency perspective, you know, there aren't just six teams that can make the final four. There's, there's 12, maybe it goes as far as 16, because one thing to keep in mind, Aaron, especially this year with, with an older version of college basketball, early round upsets don't make winning four games nearly as impossible for a lower seed. All it takes is one, one top seed in your division or in your bracket to get upset, right? But there are, are 16, 12, whatever, 15 teams that can get to the final four. I really believe that. Now, how many right now are at the end of, uh, on selection Sunday can actually win a national championship? I agree with you, maybe, maybe six to eight. Um, before the big fella from Baylor got injured, I would put them in the group that you had. I, I think you have to consider it. And I would also uh, consider uh, Villanova and Kansas as, as part of that group. Just you have to look at the conference they're playing in, how efficient they've been from all early November all the way through, the number of quad one wins that they, they have going into the tournament, and just like the difference between them and maybe a couple of the teams that, that you mentioned, it's just, it's negligible, you know? And the other part that he said, Aaron, uh, that I, I really believe, great offense in the NCAA tournament beats great defense. Mm -hmm. And I, I've had a couple of the teams where we would have been on the great side of defense and maybe very good on offense. And I look back and say who that year wanted or who beat us or what was the difference? It's just being able to score and being super, super efficient, it's harder to have an off day, you yeah. know? And, uh, 
And when you think of this year's field, you know, Arizona jumps out at me, Kentucky and Gonzaga really jump out at me. Auburn jumps out at me, you know, uh, you're right. And, and those four teams, but it'll be interesting. You know, the last part is the injury. I mean, how many times I remember when I was in Cincinnati, Bob Huggins had Kenyon Martin and they were head and shoulders, the number one team, similar to like a Gonzaga this year. And, you know, their best player went down and they played that tournament without him. Well, you know, that's, that's a big difference in who's going to win the national championship. So um, hopefully those teams can stay healthy, but uh, I don't know if I answered your question, but those are my educated thoughts on this year's tournament from a, trust me, a much different perspective than if I'm the coach at Arizona. Well, no, and we'll, we'll wrap on that. I will say this, first of all, the only reason I don't have Baylor is because sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's your year and they just have had one guy after the other, after the other weird injury. injury. Yeah, man, it's, it's sad. And uh, your guy, James Akinjo missed a few games and all that stuff. And then with Kansas, I'll just say this. Um, I went through a little bit of this with, with football where I picked Georgia to win the national championship in the preseason. Then they get destroyed by Alabama. And so I picked Alabama to win the championship in the playoffs. So if I went on record with Kansas in October and then I come back and say they're done in February and they win it all, I'm going to be pissed. No disrespect to, to your guy, Bill Self there. But, uh, but yeah, no, I think Kansas could probably do it in Villanova as well. All right, Sean Miller, uh, Field of 68, uh, the – what was next play podcast with, with Archie Miller. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Coach, I, I genuinely appreciate the time. Uh, we covered a lot of ground, covered a lot of ground. Uh, we know you love Aaron Donald. We know you love Bill Self, Nico Medved. <laughs> Lots to take out of this. But I appreciate the time, and uh, we'll continue these conversations. We'll do it again soon, okay? My dark horse, Aaron, for the final four, I got two of them. So I've, I've talked about the group. I'd say don't sleep on UCLA because of their unique style of play and their experience. I think Mick Cronin is a heck of a coach. in Purdue, because like we talked about, Great offense beats great defense. And if you look mm. at their offense, you talk about great offense. Purdue might have the best as you enter the tournament. Okay, so two nerdy questions I want to ask you before we finish recording here. We're still recording. So one, one is more of a statement than a question, but it's so funny what you say about offense. Uh, the year that Virginia was upset by UMBC, I remember talking to a coach the day that been to Final Fours, won national championships the day after they lost. And he said, until they get more efficient on offense, which they did the next year, you'll never win it. You can't win. If at a certain point, you're just going to get dragged into a game where you got to score in the eighties. And if you can't do that over six games, you're not going to win Two, I wanted to ask you. So you said Purdue, it's not really a Purdue question. It's more of a, in general question. I watch Auburn this year. And like, I think Walker Kessler is like the most important player in college basketball outside of maybe Oscar Shibway. But what stands out to me about all these teams is Arizona, Christian Coloco, Ashulis Tubelis, guys that you know well, Kentucky, Oscar Shibwe, Walker Kessler, Jabari Smith's kind of a perimeter-ish player. Um, Purdue, you mentioned, Duke has Bancaro and Williams. How great is it as a coach when you just have a guy that you can just dump it in the – like we love – and we talked about two-point guards and spacing and three-point shooting and everybody loves Steph Curry and Clay Thompson – how nice is it as a coach when you just got a dude that you can just dump the ball down low to, and it's just an automatic two? Well, Aaron, the other thing that Ken Palm, you know, Ken Palmeroy talked to, to me and my brother about on our podcast is 
if you think about, you know, what, what's the hardest part of, of single elimination tournament, like the NCAA tournament, you know, what makes it March Madness is in that 40 minutes in that one shot deal, you have to be the better of the two teams, you know, but if you'd say, what is the one statistic that, that is the hardest to lose from game to game? So like, you know, like that makes you the most consistent team in that type of format. And it's two point offense, okay. two point percentage offense, your efficiency in scoring twos. And guess what? Your efficiency in taking away twos your two point field goal defense and how hard it is to be scored against from two. It makes perfect sense. If you think about it, right. Going from Thursday, Saturday, Friday, Sunday, and having to win six games or four games to get to a final four against all these different styles on a neutral court. What is it that doesn't allow you to be upset? That's the the most, I mean, that's the most efficient thing that you can take from you from game to game, to game, to game. And, and, and it's what you said to have those types of players that's why, you know, not that I'm betting on the tournament, but if I'm going to, you know, pull out money to bet on March Madness, looking at two-point field goal offense and defense might be the overall number one thing you look you look at. And it's why Walker Kessler, Auburn is a dangerous team, electrifying style of play. You know, I think Jabari might be the overall best talent in college basketball. But you put him on the court with his shot blocking and then just his high efficiency scoring, it kind of takes Auburn to another level. And uh, yeah, yeah. And and again, back to Arizona. You know, I know obviously Azulis and Christian well, and uh, and then even, you know, the big fella that they bring off the bench. I mean, I mean he's big. He's a big guy. You know, from Gonzaga, and it's like you think about those three guys. What do they affect? Two point field goal offense and defense. Gonzaga obviously speaks for itself. So uh, those are the teams that I think you really look hard at. And I think to answer your question in a big way, point guard play, but do you have a rim protector and a guy can score it at the rim? Uh, man, that's maybe the second biggest ingredient to look for. There you go. On top of everything else, we now have bracket advice via Sean Miller. So <laughs> coach Miller, yeah. we appreciate the time. Uh, we will do it again soon. Uh, thank you. And uh, all the podcasts, uh, Field of 68 Media. But thank you again for the time, Coach. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Aaron. Great great to be on with you. And a heartfelt, really meant what I said about, about you earlier. Really respect and appreciate how you go about your job. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.